This morning's reading is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and starting at verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, we pray, using some words again from that great psalm. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, some of us may be feeling that we are pushed back and about to fall. I pray that as you address us from your word, we might be able to say that you have helped us. Some of us may be feeling full already of shouts of joy and victory. Our Lord, would you draw us to give you thanks, to center our lives upon you. And for all of us, dear Lord, would you bring us to the stone the builders rejected, that he may be our capstone, your son, our Lord Jesus, our Savior and Lord, that in him we may know that you are good and your love endures forever. I ask it in his name. Amen. I'll do please be seated. And uh, it's great to see you in church this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on our YouTube service uh, as well. And uh, we are back, as John said, in our series uh, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're new to us, if you've joined us over the Christmas period, uh, you can find all our previous uh, sermons uh, on our church website, on our, on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to dig back into where we started uh, some months ago, then uh, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, we won't be doing much by way of uh, reminder this morning because we have an awful lot uh, in front of us in this great passage uh, this morning. As we look around uh, at the church in this country, uh, I want to suggest that things are not always enormously encouraging. Uh, in fact, here are three words uh, just to uh, set the scene that I think are realistic uh, as we contemplate where we are in the providence of God, uh, in the Western world as Christians. We're in a season of decline, 
of dishonor and of division. It doesn't mean that there aren't good things happening for which we give thanks and in which we rejoice, but the reality is that we are in lean times spiritually. The church, uh, measured by the attendance at its services, that isn't the only measure, but it's a pretty good one uh, in terms of uh, people who take faith in Jesus seriously, has been declining remorselessly for about 50 years. Uh, There are huge declines, particularly uh, in those who are under 60 uh, in the last 30 years. As we uh, look around in our own town, uh, in the 20 years in which we've been in Hartford, in Northwich, more churches have closed than have opened. And those that are there generally have far fewer uh, numbers than they did 20 years ago. The uh, Americans have been doing some research on the likely impact of coronavirus uh, by doing uh, some extensive polls uh, and other research. And uh, the conclusions uh, of one reputable think tank is that church attendance post-pandemic is likely to be on average 20% lower than it was pre-pandemic. No reason particularly to think that things will be different in England. Good habits are hard to get back into. So we live in a season of decline. We also live in a season of dishonor. Uh, And by that I mean uh, that we have been uh, wearied and shocked, scandalized uh, over recent years and decades by the number of revelations that there have been of great wickedness from all sorts of people in our society, but including, and in some ways uh, uh, not as a a minor note, uh, but as a major theme, uh, Christian leaders who have been guilty uh, of the worst excesses of abuse and in more recent times of bullying and other scandalous behavior as well. As we thought on Boxing Day, in terms of the public perception of the reliability of those in different professions, clergy don't even come in the top half of the list. We'd be much better off talking to a nurse or a teacher or a doctor if we want to find someone in our culture who people believe will tell them the truth than we would be talking to a vicar. We live in times of dishonor among Christian leaders. We also live in times of division. Uh, We've known, of course, the denominational divides uh, for many centuries. Those divides are still with us. And in some ways, uh, even divisions among Bible-loving evangelicals uh, have only grown worse uh, over recent years. Now, I don't want to uh, discourage you by uh, saying these things to you this morning, but I want us to be honest about the days in which we live, precisely because in the word that God has given us for today is great encouragement, not in a good world where the church is growing and all is rosy, but in this world, in this culture today, God has a word for us who face these challenges, a word of encouragement and strengthening and enabling And it's this word we've got before us. Do have it open or uh, click to the page uh, at the beginning of uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We are going to be looking this morning uh, uh, from verse 1, not from verse 3. Jackie read the right reading. Uh, We did cover up to chapter 6 verse 2 in the last sermon. But really it's a a hinge couple of verses. uh, And it will do us good to have a look at those again, uh, setting the context for uh, the rest of the passage that was read for us. 
So in the face of decline, uh, Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2 that we have an urgent task with a powerful weapon that is the gospel of grace. For He is the God of growth and he is the God of renewal. We have a credible ministry. Uh, That is uh, what Paul's uh, main focus is uh, in these verses. It didn't mean it didn't come under criticism and attack, uh, sometimes of the most violent kind. But he holds out for us in these verses, in his own example, and as he points us to the Lord Jesus, to the way in which uh, we may have not a a proud uh, ministry, but rather a humble and confident one in Jesus Christ. That is the response to the dishonor that there is in our culture uh, amongst clergy. Not making excuses, not uh, pretending these awful things have not happened, but returning to the Lord Jesus that he might renew us in patterns after his own ministry and by the power of his own spirit. And then thirdly, uh, we shall see or hear that heartfelt appeal uh, that is from the apostle to the Corinthians, uh, from whom many in that congregation he was estranged because they rejected his ministry and they'd come under the, uh, the voices of those who brought a subtly altered and yet profoundly deathly message that they called their own gospel. And Paul's appeal to us, uh, and we here just want to look outside of our congregation to uh, national pictures that we can't do much about individually, but right here at St. John's, we can hear that appeal to love one another from the heart and let those hearts renewed by the Holy Spirit speak words of encouragement and strengthening to each other. So here we have the answer to decline, dishonor, and division, an urgent task, a credible ministry, and a heartfelt appeal. Let's get to uh, working through these uh, together first, uh, then an urgent task. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. It was now then, 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote it, and it is now today, because it is always today in the economy of God for the operation of the grace of his gospel. We may feel, uh, some of us, that we've let the years slip by, that we've made too many mistakes, uh, that we've simply uh, made such a wreck of our lives and our faith that it is too late for us. And Paul says to us, no, today, now, you may know the power and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Whatever has gone before, for the grace of Jesus is fitted precisely to the wreckage of my life and yours that it may cover it and renew it and make it entirely new in Jesus. Look at what Paul says here, as God's fellow workers. What an extraordinary uh, phrase to use. Paul here says, you know, here I am. Uh, I'm just a man uh, and despised by many. And yet because of Christ's enabling, I'm a fellow worker with God on God's team. Yes, of course, he's the leader, the enabler. He is our all in all. But we are fellow workers with God. Now, Paul says this, and we'll think of a little bit more about this in the second point. Of course, he's talking personally. Uh, this is his own testimony as an apostle of Jesus. We're not apostles of Jesus. 
But we are those who know and love Jesus if we're Christian people. And we too are called and equipped to be fellow workers with God. And we see that in this broader passage. The language Paul uses there is of urging the Corinthians urging us not to receive God's grace in vain is the same language he's just used when he's speaking about what God is doing, although our translation uses different words in English. He's just told us that God has urged us to come and trust his son. And now he says, as fellow workers with God, we urge you. In other words, how does God call people to trust in Jesus? He does it through your voices and my voice. And not just my voice here in this pulpit, but rather all of the voices of those who know and love Jesus enable us to be fellow workers with God, urging our neighbors and friends and families to come to discover new life in Jesus Christ. We are God's fellow workers. Our message is one of God's grace, God's grace that reaches us in our failure and despair and there touches us with life. And peace in Jesus. And he says, don't receive that grace in vain. Don't just pay lip service to it. Don't just come to church. Don't just tune in to the YouTube channel. The God of grace, uh, as we come to him and respond to him, he draws us to turn from our old ways in repentance and to live a new life of faith that works itself out in love. If there is no repentance and no love, then God's grace has been received in vain. However orthodox our confession, however habitual our church attendance may be, do not receive God's grace in vain, he says. And when we do that, when we hear this gospel, we have a God who hears us and who helps us. The scriptures tell us this. And Paul here says they're fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus. A God who will hear you. Precisely your individual voice out of the billions of souls on the planet. And when he hears you crying out to him, Lord, have mercy on me. Yes, me, the sinner, again. Well, then he will help you right today, right now, in the gospel of his son. He hears us, he helps us. And that time to receive that grace is now. And that's true. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians. Paul is writing to Christians and saying, now is the day of favor and salvation, and I urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. This isn't just a message for the unbelievers, though it is not less than that. It's a message for us who are believers. Receive God's grace today. Walk closely with Jesus now. Turn from your sins today. Don't tell me of what God did in your life 20 years ago. Are you walking with him now, is Paul's question to us. Now here is the urgent task uh, with the living and powerful gospel that God has given us to share. And it is shared by uh, those with a credible ministry. And that's what Paul goes on to describe in the central verses of this chapter. Uh, It it is a personal account. Uh, Not everything that Paul says here will map onto our lives. Uh, It is a poetic uh, uh, series uh, of verses uh, he doesn't structure things in the usual way. And although I've, I think, found some structure with some help from some friends on my bookshelf, uh, uh, there's a danger when we uh, structure poetry that we miss uh, the form uh, of its power. Now, Paul gives us a scattergun of words. 
because he wants us to feel the emotional energy of what he's saying. He's not being dispassionate at this point, but rather passionate. He's also being deeply pastoral because he wants them to know in Corinth, just as we must know as well, that there is no exalted class of Christians who rise above all the troubles and heartaches of this world or who have some sort of inner track where they always feel the closeness of the spirit and always walk in a righteous way. Now there is one savior and one people of God and he wants them to know his weakness that they may discover the Lord's strength for themselves. So it's very personal and very pastoral. Now the headline here is in verses three and four. Uh, We put no stumbling block in anyone's uh, way. And rather, he says positively, uh, there is to be great endurance. And then what follows are 34 word pictures of Paul's ministry. We can't look at all of those in detail, uh, or there'll be a fire in your houses uh, if you've put the oven on a timer. Uh, But there is a sort of pattern as we work our way through it. And I'm hoping this will help us to get a sense uh, of the broad areas Uh, that Paul is sharing as he opens his heart to his hearers. Uh, There are nine words of the hardships that he experiences in his ministry. There are eight words or phrases about the grace of God that he knows in his ministry and that we may know as well. Uh, There are three pictures of steadfastness in ministry, and there are 14, I haven't even got that many fingers, contrasting perspectives of what Christian ministry looks like Uh, from the view just down here and from the view of eternity. So let's work through uh, those, uh, as I say, with some speed uh, this morning. The headline, though, uh, verses 3 and 4, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, it's the same word as he's just used, so I've changed it there on the screen. Rather, as ministers of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance. That's, in a sense, uh, the headline over all that he will now say in great endurance. Uh, Now, as we uh, say this, uh, the first thing I need to say is that when he talks about being ministers of God, uh, he isn't just meaning the apostles, but neither is he simply meaning, and we might make this connection uh, because of the way we use the words in English, people like me who wear a collar and who stand in a pulpit, uh, not even just meaning those who may have a preaching ministry. It doesn't not apply to us. It applies to us in a particular way, we may say. But it certainly applies to all those who open their mouths in the name of Jesus. It applies right now to those of our sisters and brothers who are teaching our children in Sunday school. They are acting in this very moment as I'm standing here as ministers of God. Friends, it applies to all of us not just in formal settings for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, but any time we open our mouths in the name of Jesus, we are acting as ministers of God, urging people, remember, not to receive God's grace in vain. And I would go beyond that, even uh, as Paul does here, not just our verbal ministry, but the very character of our lives. Whenever we are living as Christian people, we are before the world as ministers of God, because people will look at you and say, well, that must be what a Christian is like. And you will give a message about that. Whether it's a message you're proud of or ashamed of is another matter. 
And here, Paul, uh, though there may be, in a sense, concentric circles or particular applications to those in certain forms of ministry, Paul is here not limiting the scope of what he says. All of us who are new creatures in Jesus have a ministry from God and are filled with the Spirit that we may be ministers, servants of God and of Jesus in our lives in the world. So don't think this point seems to just be about vicars, so I'll go onto the phone and stare out the window. It doesn't apply to me. You're not off the hook that easily. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a servant of Jesus, a minister of his gospel. So uh, we must therefore put no stumbling block in anyone's uh, way, uh, and rather we commend ourselves uh, instead. So there is here uh, both the negative and the positive Let me say a little bit, first of all, about the negative. Uh, And this is a particular application, uh, which is increasingly a part of our lives together uh, and will also feature very much in the next few months of our common life. Uh, Part of the response, part of the right response, although in many ways it feels like a wearisome thing because there is so much work and administration and effort to put in, is that we must be absolutely committed to the work of safeguarding. And that means that every one of us uh, who does anything in our church, uh, whatever group we're in, if we're serving other people in our church, we need to have gone through the rigorous procedures of safeguarding. And we do that uh, not to tick a box and because it's the 21st century and uh, it's just the way the world is. We do it positively because we do not want to put a stumbling block in someone else's way. We acknowledge the frailty. We acknowledge our vulnerability. And so, uh, as we've appointed John to oversee this work, we're doing that far more seriously now than we have ever done before. And we do it not because we're obliged, but because we don't want to put a stumbling block in anyone's way. Or again, another illustration uh, or application uh, of this. Uh, We will be undertaking over this next 12 months a cultural audit uh, in our church And the reason for that is the disturbing number of stories in the last three or four years that have come out from churches like ours, Bible-loving evangelical churches, where there has been abusive behavior, not physically abusive, but spiritually abusive, coercive behavior, bullying behavior. And we want to step back and allow that light to be shone on us so that there may be no stumbling block. In anyone's way. It doesn't mean everyone is suddenly going to think everything we do is wonderful. Just listen to the rest of the passage and you'll see that. But objectively, there must be none of that worldly, domineering, abusive, bullying behavior tolerated in any sphere of our church's life. And that applies increasingly as you come to the leaders in the church. So we are going to engage in these things. They're going to take a lot of time and effort. And we're going to do them, not because someone's told us we have to, but because we want to put no stumbling block in anyone's way. Well, positively, uh, Paul says we want to commend ourselves. He doesn't mean he wants people to write him a reference. He's already rejected that path of commendation. He wants to be able to say to people, as we must, come and look at my life, and you will see there and." authenticity that is genuine Christian faith in action. You won't find perfection. Come to my life and you'll find daily confession of my many sins. But you will find a seriousness, uh, nothing hidden away that if exposed 
would reveal you as a hypocrite. Oh, come, Paul says, and look at me, he says, and you'll find an authentic Christian disciple. Can we say that? It's a terrifying thing to say, but actually it is the mark of authentic Christian life, negative and positive, and great endurance is uh, the ultimate uh, headline over this passage. Uh, Jesus said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You know, in the end, Christian living is about Christian enduring. It's easy when we look back, isn't it, those of us who've been Christians for many years, uh, to look back at that first moment when we decided for Christ. We were probably young and healthy and didn't have all the other troubles that come into our lives, at least for many of us. That will have been something of our story. Well, roll forward 30 years, and the body is not what it was. We know the scars of living. We know the heartaches of having endured 30 years of church life uh, and the personal failures as we've sought to follow Jesus. And we hear those words differently today. He who perseveres to the end, who stands firm to the end, well, that's the real Christian. That's the real minister of God. Oh, what does it look like to uh, persevere like that, to endure greatly uh, to the end? Well, Paul identifies nine hardships in ministry. Uh, The first three are a general kind, troubles, uh, hardships, and distresses. Uh, Distresses literally um, to do with that that sense of uh, the rock and the hard place, and you just don't know how to get through in the next season. Those times uh, when it just seems to be impossible to find a way forward uh, in your life. A few years after I became vicar here, we established a group, an informal group of uh, people, uh, men and women, younger and older within the congregation uh, who I trusted. And I got round me uh, because I said I needed help with what I felt were my immovable obstacles. Having been here a few years at the time, uh, thought I had lots of wonderful ideas, and then nothing proved as simple or straightforward uh, as it does when you're young. Well, Paul says that's life, that's Christian living, uh, that there will be troubles, there'll be illness, and there'll be falling out with other people. There'll be hardships of all kinds, physical, emotional, spiritual, and there'll be these distresses, these immovable objects that we just wish we could be rid of and yet seem to be with us through the years. We'll all have different things in our minds under those general headings, but we will all have them. And that is inevitable. Indeed, as Paul says to young Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So to follow Christ is to embrace trouble. Welcome to the journey. Uh, It was for Paul, it will be for us. Uh, Then he speaks of three that are particular hardships, uh, beatings, imprisonments, uh, and riots. I'm guessing not many of us have been imprisoned. Not many of us have riots started in our own name, although I could tell you a story. I won't today for lack of time. Uh, But the point is, this is Paul's account. You'll have your own. There will be those particular swords that have pierced you, those particular wounds that do not seem to heal, those memories that even decades on, you remember them and you still shudder, those unique challenges that are yours and yours alone. Paul had his, you have yours. 
And then thirdly, that third group, what we have called gospel hardship. Now that is in a sense self-imposed hardship. Because you love Jesus and you want uh, those around you to know him and you want to grow in your knowledge of his word and you want to serve him, you put yourself under pressure to work hard that that may be the case. You may even find yourself having sleepless nights, not just because of your day job and because you want the promotion, but because you're preparing Sunday school or you're looking for an opportunity to uh, dig deep on a particular subject that's of a concern to a friend of yours and you want to be able to give them a credible Christian answer. You may even skip meals for the sake of serving Jesus. Oh, there are these hardships. There are also many graces, eight graces uh, in ministry. Uh, there, is, uh, there are many ways to uh, look at this list. Uh, here's just one way uh, of uh, doing this, uh, which I hope you might find helpful. The first is to be more literal. Uh, Paul speaks uh, not particularly of understanding, but of knowledge. Uh, that is, of the knowledge of God we have when we come to trust in Jesus. Uh, a knowledge of God that comes, uh, he's speaking here not of uh, truthful speech, though that is uh, absolutely necessary for anyone who is a Christian, but rather of God's speech. The word of truth uh, is what he's actually referring to more literally here. So those two small changes uh, then give us this. God is at work in us by his spirit, in the hardship, with the intractable issues, with all the character flaws that I have, and I know you have as well. Don't despair or give up. God is at work in you. Paul says, in the Holy Spirit and in the power of God, we will find the resources to face the challenges that are uniquely ours in the life that God has given us here today, now. And God is at work in us by his Spirit, making us more like his Son, Jesus. Jesus was perfectly pure. Jesus was endlessly patient. And kind, indeed, love as patient and kind is part of Paul's great definition of it in his first epistle to the Corinthians. But God is patient with us. And thank God it is so. God is kind to us, even when we have enemies and do not deserve it. Uh, God's love for us, Christ's love, is that not just of the love of words, but of sincerity, of the laying down of his life for us. And friends, God is making us more and more like Jesus as we follow him. He's working in us patterns of increased purity, deepening patience with the most frustrating, annoying, awkward people in your lives. Obviously, there are none of you like that in this church. I'm talking, uh, obviously, hypothetically about other churches. Uh, But growing in patience, growing in kindness to those who are unkind to us. Growing in love to those who are hard to love. Unfeigned love, sincere love. In other words, Christ-like love, patience, kindness, purity. God is at work in us powerfully by his spirit to make us more like his son. And he does it as our minds are renewed by his word. That's why the more literal translation of those words is so important. Because Paul here says it's our knowledge of God. That will make us more like him. And how does that knowledge come? But through the word of truth. That is through the scriptures. As our minds are renewed and transformed uh, by his word. God is at work in us by his spirit. Making us more like his son. 
as our minds are renewed by his word. That's how we face the hardships, the challenges, the impossible uh, difficulties we have. We might even say uh, this is what Paul is pointing to and enabling by God's work in us, that we might walk in truth and live in love together. And then we have this threefold picture of steadfastness uh, in ministry, weapons of righteousness in the right hand and uh, the left. That picture of weapons, perhaps uh, a little alarming, but uh, Peter, Paul picks it up later in the epistle. Uh, he says our weapons are not those of uh, the world. There's nothing violent here uh, in physical terms at all he's speaking of. Rather, he's speaking, he says, of demolishing arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, the battle he's engaged in is a battle of the mind. It's uh, taking the word of God that it might triumph over every uh, challenge and uh, opposition to it in our own soul and in our own lives. Weapons of righteousness. Uh, Read about them at great length uh, at the end of his epistle uh, to the Ephesians. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, The belt of truth, the sword of uh, the shield of faith and so on. Uh, These are not physical things. This is not violence. This is spiritual battle. He's encouraging us to engage in. Uh, And the uh, the particular pattern here uh, is that it's one that we do constantly. It's the right hand and the left. And it's in seasons when people dishonor us. They just think nothing of us, as is often the case in our culture and what people think of as Christians. Or if we live in one of those rare seasons uh, when it brings glory to follow Jesus and you're thought wonderfully of because you're a Christian person. It is like that in some cultures. It's not like that in ours. There'll be times when bad things are said about us. Uh, The wickedness of social media enables uh, all sorts uh, of nonsense to be said, doesn't it? Truth uh, is barely out of bed before the lies are halfway around the world. Uh, That was uh, a phrase from before the internet age, how much more so in the days of Twitter and Facebook. Now, but whether there are good reports or bad reports, uh, uh, dishonor or glory, the right hand and the left, in other words, the whole person, is to be engaged in the spiritual battle, and that will enable you to stand steadfast and firm. And now we won't look at these in any detail at all, except to notice the two, uh, or the contrast here in these 14 perspectives from verses 8 to 10. Uh, They're not all untrue, but some of them are. Now, the point is, when you look at Christians, when you look at uh, those who seek to live for Jesus now, if you look at them, us, just from the perspective of mortal man, well, then at our worst, we will be thought of as imposters. Because we talk about an invisible world and a resurrected Savior. And at its worst, people will tell us we are therefore deluded and at worst, wicked. Well, the other Uh, of the six contrasts, uh, have more truth in them from this worldly perspective. We're regarded as unknown. Who are we? But just one small group and nothingness uh, in the greater culture. Uh, Regarded as dying. Uh, We have talked already about the decline. Uh, Do you know if it carries on as it is, there'll be no Christians left in 2043 in the United Kingdom. We have the reputation of dying. Uh, Beaten. 
often opposed uh, metaphorically perhaps in our culture more than physically, although there's plenty of physical examples in the worldwide church. Sorrowful. We are sorrowful. We're, We're sorrowful for our sins. We're sorrowful for the state of the church and the nation. We're poor because we give our money away to those who need it more than we do. Uh, We have nothing in worldly terms or human achievement. And yet, from the perspective of eternity, everything is different. Because when the atheist stands before Jesus Christ on the last day, he's going to realize that the Christian who shared the gospel with him wasn't an imposter at all, but in fact was a genuine messenger from the coming world. We are known by God. We live on through the work of God's spirit and eventually the resurrection that will be ours. Likewise, God preserves his people, dying and yet not killed. We always rejoice, even in the midst of our sorrows. We may be poor, physically speaking, What a richness it is. Lewis was sharing with me this week uh, uh, the story of a new believer in the Hong Kong community. The joy that has come to that soul is incalculable and worth vastly more than any number of billions of pounds. We've seen in the media, haven't we, what having billions of pounds enables you to do in the kind of lifestyle you can live. It doesn't even bring earthly joy in the end when it's discovered. No, earthly poverty, perhaps, yet richness in spiritual and eternal terms. Having nothing, yes, maybe, but in the end, possessing everything. And that, in the end, is the only perspective that matters. And so Paul says, and I'll close with this very briefly, uh, indeed, he makes his appeal to us and sends us out to make that appeal to a dying world. He says we must commend that message by not bringing that word into dishonor, but rather honoring it in the way in which we endure hardship, live by his grace, endure, and recognize that in the end, that final perspective is all that matters. And so equipped, he says, well, then now here in this community, we are to be a place of love. We've spoken freely to you, he says to the Corinthians, that they've withheld their love uh, from him. And when we are in Christ, we must never acquiesce with that. Is there far for us to go? Of course there is uh, in growing in love in our own church family here. We have lessons to learn, things to repent of, ways in which we can learn uh, to love one another better. But the commitment to that must be absolute. And the crying to the Lord, make us a loving people. Teach us to love those you've put around us with patience and kindness and purity and sincere love. And the way to do that is not to wait for someone else to make the first move. Paul says, I'm not withholding my affections from you, even though you're withholding them from me. No, take that vulnerable choice to step out in love, even when you've been hurt before, and you will find that God is with you as you do that. You are withholding yours from us. Let that not be said of our congregation. Uh, Rather, open wide your hearts, friends, that we may be a community where the love of Jesus is tangible here and where those who come in may fall down and say, God is really among you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much to discourage us 
uh, in our own souls, as we look around at our culture, the state of the church. And yet we thank you here that in your word to us this morning is a powerful word of hope, of transformation, of Christ-like salvation and renewal. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us this morning. Perhaps some of us, for the first time, need to come on a day of salvation to receive you, Lord Jesus, as master and as rescuer. There'll be many of us, Lord, who need a fresh working of your spiritual power in us to renew our repentance, to deepen our faith, to let it shine forth in love. There'll be many of us with different pains and hardships that we're enduring. Please, Lord, lift our eyes to you as we do so, that we might know that your grace is sufficient for us, your power made perfect precisely in our weakness. And please, dear Lord, would you make us a loving Christian family, drawing in others to know your grace for themselves and building one another up. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.